Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Hello and welcome to episode 14. I got a new mic. It's not that fancy, but it's pretty neat. Can you tell the difference? Probably not, but that's okay. Anyways, let's get into today's episode. So today, I let the stars choose this case, kind of. It's Aries season, so I searched for serial killers who were Aries, and this is the case that popped up. So happy birthday, Aries babes. If you were born between March 21st and April 19th, that's you. Don't worry, if you don't care about zodiac signs, I'm not going to go into a ton of details on that. It's just an interesting way for me to choose a case each month. And it's something that I think is interesting to learn about. In my last case, uh, last month I did a Pisces case. And I went a little bit more into detail about some of, like, the Pisces traits and things like that. If you guys liked that and you want me to do that when I do these, like, zodiac chosen cases, let me know. If you're like, I don't care, then that's fine. Uh, Anyway, so I've heard this story before, and I was excited to take my own deep dive into this case. Plus, I've recently been reading The Mayfair Witches by Anne Rice, so this case fits in nicely with my witchy vibe I've got going on. Side note, I'm loving The Mayfair Witches. Uh, Anne Rice is a really descriptive writer and a great storyteller, so if you like that genre of kind of dark witchy things, I highly recommend. For our case this week, we are traveling to beautiful Italy to talk about Italy's very first serial killer. Real quick, this case takes place in Italy. I'm clearly not Italian, so I apologize in advance if I mispronounce things. I promise you I am trying my best. I've looked up the Google translations. I've looked up the the phonetic speech thing. I'm really, I, I promise I'm trying. Please don't be mad at me, okay? In October of 1940, three women had mysteriously disappeared from the town of Correggio. Each of them had sent letters saying that they decided to move out of Correggio very suddenly, and when the police started looking into their disappearances, they put together that all three women had something in common. The last day that they'd been seen, neighbors of the Pansardi family saw them go into the Pansardi house, but couldn't remember seeing them leave. They knew this was the home of a very well-known woman in town, Leonardo Pansardi, who was a local soap maker who entertained the ladies of the town with her stories, advice, palm readings, and delicious tea cakes. They questioned Leonardo, and she said of course the women had come to visit her for one last coffee before they moved away, but she hadn't seen them since. Police got a search warrant and discovered all three of the women's packed bags hidden in a closet at the Pansardi house. Not a great hiding place in my opinion. Obviously, this sweet old lady couldn't have harmed them. She was too old and frail. So, police quickly moved their sights onto Leonardo's oldest son, Giuseppe. Giuseppe was a strong young man who was getting ready to leave town to go with the Italian army into battle during World War II. It seemed very clear to police what had actually happened, and Giuseppe was quickly arrested and questioned about his about the disappearances. Giuseppe was looking more and more guilty when suddenly his mom showed up to take the heat for his crimes. Police probably laughed at Leonardo when she said that she was the one who had murdered these women, and they thought that there was absolutely no way that she would have been strong enough or evil enough to murder three of her close friends. Clearly, she was just trying to protect her son. Everyone was, of course, shocked when she gave an extremely detailed confession about exactly what she did and exactly how she did it. Today's story is about Leonardo Cianciulli, a.k.a. the soap maker of Correggio. Leonardo's childhood had a lot to do with her choices later in life, so we need to go all the way back to way before she was born and talk about her mother, Emilia Dinalfi. Emilia Dinalfi was born in the late 1800s in Montella, Italy. Oh, side note, someone on TikTok the other day ruined my life because they said that the teens call the 1990s the late 1900s. You've got to be kidding. 
okay? You just say 1990. Don't make me feel like I was born in ancient times. What are you... T- oh, okay, moving on. I'm sorry that you now know that information, too. Anyways, so we're in Montella, Italy. Her family was very wealthy and very well-respected and were high up on the social food chain. If this were 2010 New York, they'd be like the stars of Gossip Girl partying it up on the Upper East Side. You know what I mean? Amelia was approaching the age where it would be time for her to find a husband and settle into a nice, wealthy family where she would have all the luxuries she was used to and bear her new husband and heir to the family fortune. Amelia was beautiful and her parents were thrilled because that meant that they would have a very easy time getting her married. They would have a great pool of suitors to choose from. Think like Bridgerton vibes if you've seen it. During these times, it was improper for a lady to go out on her own and date and meet men, so her family was very involved in this process. And when I say involved, I mean they controlled the whole thing. If you were a young man in the 1800s, you basically had to go to a job interview that your parents set up for you with your potential wife's parents, and you would go and tell them about how well-educated and talented you were and show them what you brought to the table for their daughter. If they liked you, you would get to have chaperone dates and court her until it was time to set a wedding date. Amelia was very popular among the young men in Montella, and her parents allowed her to go to many fancy parties uh, with her friends and with possible suitors. It seemed like everything was going great for Amelia until one night when she was walking home from a party alone. A man named Mariano Cianciulli had been essentially stalking Amelia for a while. Mariano was older than Amelia, and he was from a poor family in Montella. Mariano basically grew to resent Amelia, knowing that she was way out of his league as far as society goes, and he was basically known around town for being a drunk loser. So he would never be given the opportunity to meet her, let alone court her and eventually marry her. His resentment grew stronger and stronger, but and had put her on such a high pedestal, he took it upon himself to knock her off that pedestal. Because these types of men are disgusting and horrendous, he decided to take what he knew he would never get by being polite. If you have listened to this podcast before, you know that I don't generally do trigger warnings because... The trigger warning is that you're listening to a true crime podcast, but I did want to warn you, I'm going to be talking about sexual assault. As always, I will not go into more detail than necessary, but some detail is needed to explain this situation. Um, I'm going to make this quick, but if you would like to skip ahead like 30 seconds, you may do that now. So Amelia was walking home from this party when Mariana grabbed her and pulled her off of the road. As most young women in this time, Amelia was completely naive to sex. This was not something that you discussed or explored. It was just up to you to figure it out on your wedding night, much like growing up in Utah. Okay, anyway, Amelia had no idea what was at stake when Mario attacked her. At first, she thought it was her friends playing a prank on her, and then when Mariano began pulling at her clothes, she thought that it was because she was being robbed and told him she didn't have any money. Unfortunately, obviously Mariano was not after money, and Amelia was shocked and had no idea what was happening to her. She was in so much pain after the attack, she laid on the ground for hours before she got up and dragged herself home. She fell into bed fully clothed and fell asleep. The next morning when she woke up, it finally dawned on her what happened and she felt horrible. And it makes me so upset because the thing that she felt horrible about was not that someone had attacked her. She felt horrible because she'd been taught that sex before marriage made a woman dirty and she was raised in a heavily religious household and felt what author Ryan Green described as, quote, quote, Catholic shame. Are any of you Catholics out there familiar with Catholic shame? I wasn't raised in the Catholic Church, but the religion I grew up in was also big on purity culture, so this is something I unfortunately am very familiar with. This probably goes without saying, but real quick, in case you need to hear it, sex before marriage does not mean you are damaged or dirty or unworthy. Second of all, rape is not sex, it's rape. And it's not about sex for this kind of person, it's about control. And the only person in this equation who should feel any kind of shame, self-loathing, or disgust is the rapist. So, 
let's move on before I get more heated. <laughs> Point being, Amelia had no reason to feel ashamed and disgusted with herself, but she did because of the time period and the culture that she was raised in. And because of this awful shame, she kept the attack a secret and suffered in silence. She had to see her attacker constantly, and Mariano was just waiting to see if she was going to tell the police and report him, but of course she never did. As time went on, it became impossible for Amelia to keep her secret. During this time period, it was normal for people who were well off to have a staff that worked in their house, so it was pretty hard to keep any secrets. Also during this time, there weren't a lot of options when it came to your period, like pads or tampons, things we take for granted, moment of appreciation for the women who came before us. Whoever was in charge of doing the laundry or changing the sheets would see the blood each month, and so when the staff of the Dinalfi house didn't see blood for months, they realized what was going on and told her parents. Amelia's parents were pissed, of course, and demanded to know which of her suitors, quote, had done this to their daughter. Amelia was so shocked that she was pregnant and didn't know what to tell them. Her parents basically threatened to go to every house in town and be like, did you knock up my daughter? So she eventually just caved and told them what happened. She explained that the weird town drunk, Mariano, had grabbed her one night when she was walking home. And look, I understand times were different, but I'm still disgusted with her parents because of what they did next. Instead of going and kicking this guy's ass or at least just telling the police what he'd done, they instead invited Mariano and his family over for dinner. At dinner, they discussed what would need to happen next because obviously they couldn't have the shame of an unclean daughter who lost her purity ruin their reputation around town. No, 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 that just wouldn't do. So without including Amelia or Mariano, the Dinalfis and Chianchulis planned their wedding that would need to happen very quickly before her pregnancy started showing. Amelia and Mariano didn't say one word to each other until their wedding day when they had a quick and small ceremony and Amelia's parents basically just shooed her out of their house to go start her horrible life with Mariano. Like we talked about before, Mariano was very poor and very drunk who couldn't or wouldn't get a job. He would borrow money from friends and quickly spend it on alcohol, so when they got married, Amelia was not given the life that she had always had and the life that she'd basically been trained for. She was supposed to marry some well-off man to be taken care of, much like her family had already taken care of her. But when the Denalfi's kicking her out and just basically being like, good luck, she was in the clutches of this horrible, violent man who attacked her and was now being rewarded for the disgusting thing he did. They moved across town to the poorest part and lived in a hovel, which is basically a poorly made shack. They didn't even have furniture. Mariana was very impatient and very violent toward Amelia. She hadn't been raised in a home where moms did the cooking and cleaning. She had staff for that, so she had no idea how to do these household things that Mariano expected her to do. On top of that, she had a miserable pregnancy that was really hard on her body, but Mariana didn't care to hear her, quote, excuses because he was a drunken idiot, and he would basically force himself on her and beat her whenever he had the chance. Amelia was basically just abandoned by everyone in her life who was supposed to love and care for her, and around town, she was unfortunately used as the example. The example of, look what happens when you give up your virtue before marriage. It's awful. As if any of this was Amelia's fault. It's the worst thing I've ever heard. Meanwhile, Mariano would brag around town to his drunk buddies that he'd gotten what he wanted and married the rich, beautiful girl he's, he'd always been stalking, basically, because he's a garbage person. I'm just mad at everyone. I'm mad at everyone in this story. Okay. On April 18th, 1894, after a very long and difficult labor, Amelia gave birth to a baby girl who she named Leonarda. Unfortunately for Leonarda, her mother would raise her with nothing but angry words and resentment. In Amelia's mind, Leonarda was the source of all her problems, and she had no issue with constantly telling her daughter that. Whatever anger and violence was taken out by Mariano onto Amelia, she would then take out onto young Leonarda. When Leonarda was just three years old, one day, Mariano just 
didn't come home. This wasn't totally out of the ordinary because he was still jobless and constantly going out and getting drunk, so there were many times that he would be gone for a night or two. Eventually, Amelia did go searching for him and found that he was passed out at one of his friend's houses and not doing so well. Something happened that had made him incredibly sick and he had a bad fever and was basically in a coma. Some of the other men in town carried Mariano back to his house and put him in bed, and at this point, Amelia didn't even try to take care of him. And they definitely didn't have the money to call a doctor, so she left him in bed and let nature run its course. And she probably saw a very clear escape, so it's horrible, but I kind of don't blame her. That's awful to say. Moving on. Mariano ended up dying, and it was probably a relief to Amelia. It was definitely a relief to Amelia. She packed up what little possessions they had and took Leonardo back to her parents' house, hoping for some kind of help and sympathy. But it was like her parents completely forgot that it was actually their fault that she had ended up marrying Mariano and was miserable and basically told her, too bad, you should have made better choices. Ew. This was obviously no help to Leonardo, who was now resented more than ever. Amelia was still beautiful and she was still fairly young, and even though she didn't have the best reputation, there were still some middle-class men interested in basically taking her on dates, but no one really wanted to settle down with her. Eventually, she met and married a man who wasn't great, but wasn't her worst option either. Leonardo was still very young around this time, like five or six years old, and Amelia and her new husband would go out to eat or go dancing and just leave Leonardo to fend for herself. She survived on scraps and leftovers that Amelia didn't even think twice about. Amelia's new husband was basically an easy-come, easy-go money man. He spent money even quicker than he got it and was most likely involved in some kind of organized crime, but Amelia still felt like this was an upgrade from Mariano, and it probably was, but she was still a crappy mom. Leonardo didn't receive any kind of loving attention or even civil attention from her mother. Amelia ignored her most of the time, and when she did speak to her, it was very cruel and very critical. Very Cinderella, Cinderella, you suck, go clean the chimney type stuff. So she just basically had to fend for herself her whole childhood. When Leonardo was only 12 years old, she tried to hang herself with her bed sheets, and luckily she failed, but she did hurt her throat so badly that she couldn't speak for a week. Amelia either didn't notice or didn't care when her daughter just kind of stopped speaking for a week and had bruises on her neck. A year later, Leonardo tried to take her own life again, but again, it didn't work. Not long after this, Leonardo was interesting for the first time in her life to her mother because, as it turned out, she was growing into a beautiful young woman, and she had her mother's good looks, and Amelia knew that this was an opportunity for a second chance. She went back to the rich part of town where she grew up to brag about her beautiful young daughter and basically advertise that she was looking for suitors for Leonardo. She took her sweet time, schmoozing, going to fancy parties, going to lunches, and even though Amelia cared about, or even though Amelia carried her reputation, she still came from a good family, and so people in town still were like, okay, we don't really like you that much, but you probably have a good daughter who comes from a good bloodline or whatever. So they were all eager to get their sons in front of Amelia to compete for Leonardo, basically. In the early 1900s, it was common for a man to marry a woman and then take care of his in-laws too. So it's not like Amelia was hoping to give her daughter a beautiful life that she never had. This was all about mommy. So just so we're clear. The only problem was that Amelia didn't bother to tell Leonardo that she was playing mommy matchmaker, so Leonardo was out looking for a husband for herself. Leonardo saw getting married as the only way to get away from her weird-ass mom, so she did something that was very radical for these times and basically dated, which was something that they did not do. Girls at her age didn't just go out and, like, meet men and do their thing. But in her mind, she was like, well, no one's going to set up suitors for me. I have to go out and find one myself. Get yours, girlfriends. Leonardo met a kind, older man named Raphael Cianciulli, who was a very good man with a good job working as a clerk. 
um, I'm sorry, I just said his name was Raphael Chianchuli. That's her last name. His name is um, Raphael Pansardi. I'm sorry, rewind, we're back in it. Um, he was kind to Leonardo and treated her very well. And from what I understand, Leonardo wasn't like head over heels crazy about Raphael, but she loved him because he was kind to her. And so she was like, he's not Prince Charming, but he'll be a fine husband. Let's get this done. So when Raphael proposed, she went and told Amelia and Amelia was furious. Raphael was not wealthy and from a good family like Amelia had been hunting, but again, she still didn't tell Leonardo like, hey friend, you have options. I'm trying to get you a spot on The Bachelorette in Paradise. Chris Harrison is lining up the men for you right now. That's the host of The Bachelorette's name, right? I don't actually watch the show, but it felt like the time to reference it. Anyways, <laughs> Amelia didn't tell Leonardo her plans. So Leonardo thought that her mom was just doing like a mother Gothel from Tangled and just forcing her to stay inside and didn't want her to leave because she was being selfish. So she just thought she wanted her to be miserable forever. And she was like, yeah, goodbye. I'm going to go marry this guy. Amelia did not attend the wedding. And this was when Amelia did something that would shape the rest of Leonardo's life. Amelia basically put a curse on Leonardo and said to her, quote, you will live a miserable life until the day you die. Then the sky turned green and all the flowers around her died. Just kidding. That's just how I put it in the movie about this. Anyways, it, this was the last thing that Leonardo's mom ever said to her. And Leonardo married Raphael and they got a home together. And even though she would see her around town because they still both lived there, Amelia just acted like she had no idea who Leonardo was. And Leonardo probably preferred it that way. Honestly, I would if that was her mother's situation. Leonardo was aggressively working against this curse her mom put on her and was determined to have a good life with her new husband. Unfortunately, the damage that Amelia had done to her daughter's mental health was really heavy, and Leonardo was constantly chasing perfection. She was really, really hard on herself. Raphael didn't expect her to be perfect because he was raised right and he was a good man, so when she would get upset with herself for not having the house clean enough or burning his dinner and Leonardo would end up in tears, he was like, honey, no, you're doing great, which I actually love for her. Even though Raphael was a good husband, she was constantly anxious. Like, girl, same, I get it. <laughs> and unfortunately, she got to a point where she would actually have seizures and her health started to decline because of this worry that she constantly felt. She was always nervous and had trouble sleeping, which probably made her even more anxious. And honestly, this used to be a big issue for me. I would make myself anxious about being anxious. And then you're like, I can't sleep, I have to sleep. And then you can't sleep because you're thinking about it. Anyway, shout out to my therapist. I don't have that problem like I used to. Anyways, these mental health issues also made it so that Leonardo was having a hard time getting pregnant, which she wanted more than anything. She wanted to have babies to love so that she could break the vicious cycle in her life and be the mom that her mom never was. And since she wanted it more than anything and it wasn't happening, this solidified the idea that her mother's curse was absolutely real. There was a Romani camp near her town, so one night Leonardo faced her fears and went to see a Romani fortune teller. Quick history lesson about the Romani people. The Romani were basically forced into a nomadic lifestyle where they would have to travel around in caravans, setting up camps because they were essentially kicked out of the towns that they were living in and persecuted and misunderstood because of their skin color and their folklore and their beliefs in spells and magic and things. During World War II, they faced a lot of the same fates as the Jews and are still to this day treated extremely unfairly in Europe. A lot, of a lot of people refer to them as gypsies, which is actually a very disrespectful and derogatory term. I did read in a few places that some Romani embrace that term um, and kind of use it as their own, but the issue is the appropriation and how it's being used. So um, if you know more on that subject, I would love to hear from you. I actually found this really interesting and I read a really great post on jessicareedy.com that helped me to better understand the Romani people and some of their beliefs. 
I feel like I could talk for an hour about the things I read about them, but I will just leave it at that and encourage you to do an invest to Google about it because it's always interesting, but also very important to learn about other cultures outside of Okay, back to the story of Leonardo. When Leonardo was little, her mother always taught her to fear the Romani. Like I said, people persecuted them and had this misplaced fear about them, but when Leonardo went to the Romani camp, she quickly learned that her mother had been wrong about them. The first time she went to visit them, she asked around so that she could meet a fortune teller, and when she sat down with this woman, Leonardo told her all about the curse and how worried she was, and basically just asked her, am I going to die? The palm reader took a look at her hand and told her, don't worry, you're going to live a long life. Leonardo probably felt a momentary relief, but this went away really quickly because this woman then told her, quote, but you will have a life of sadness and outlive all of your children. Yikes! Of course, Leonardo was hysterical, and this yet again confirmed her fears about the curse. For a while, Leonardo would go and visit the Romani camp every night and learn about spell work and palm readings because she thought having this knowledge could help her break this curse. Three years later, Leonardo was finally pregnant, but unfortunately she was so stressed out and so worried constantly about the baby that she eventually had a miscarriage, which was devastating and again confirmed that the curse was very real for her. Eventually, Leonardo and Raphael moved to Laria, where Raphael grew up, and when they were living in Montello, Raphael couldn't get a promotion at his job and Leonardo didn't have a lot of job options, so eventually they decided that they needed to move somewhere else so that they could basically afford to live. They ended up setting, settling in Laria, where Raphael was able to get a great job, and for the first time in her life, Leonardo had something that she had never had before, a family that loved and cared about her. Raphael's family was very warm and welcoming to her, so when she eventually did get pregnant again, she had a healthy pregnancy because she wasn't so stressed out and had people around her to help take care of her. In 1922, Leonardo gave birth to her first son, Giuseppe, and he was her pride and joy. He was a miracle. And for a moment, it seemed like the curse was maybe just a silly thing of the past. It was something she was overthinking, and Leonardo had a tendency to swing really far one way or the other. If things were going well, the curse was silly and it didn't make sense. But if things were awful, it was always the curse's fault. So, unfortunately, when things were going really, really well, she freaked herself out so much that it was all going to come crashing down because of this stupid curse that she really could never find that, like, content happiness. She went into helicopter mom mode level 10 and never let Giuseppe out of her sight, literally. She took it upon herself to be the perfect mom and, of course, stressed herself out when she felt like she wasn't living up to these insane standards that she'd given herself. She would check on Giuseppe constantly through the night and would wake him up if he hadn't, like, cried in a while. She would wake him up and then she always worried at even the slightest sniffle. This stress had caused her seizures to come back and her health declined yet again. Sadly, it seemed like the curse had its hold tight on Leonardo because all she wanted was to have more kids, but she suffered two more miscarriages and was able eventually to have more kids, but in all, Leonardo gave birth to 14 babies because she's a freaking powerhouse badass, seriously, 14, but the curse crept back into her head as 10 of her babies got sick and passed away before any of them reached the age of three, which unfortunately was a thing of these times. If kids got sick, there really wasn't much that they could do, especially because Leonardo and Raphael could not afford to have a doctor come. Eventually, things calmed down a little bit, but again, Raphael's job wasn't enough for them to afford food for their growing family, so Leonardo would have to get a job. This was an extreme cause of stress to her because she literally would not let her kids out of her sight. They were, they were not allowed to go outside. They didn't play with friends. She watched them constantly and couldn't imagine going out and working and leaving her precious kids at home. Eventually, they were able to come to an agreement, and Raphael was able to set Leonardo up with a cleaning job at the local bank. 
This was an overnight job. After the bank was closed and everyone had gone home for the day, Leonardo would just go in by herself and clean. And that was the, something that was great for her because the kids were asleep. She could watch them the entire day and then Raphael would just be there while they were sleeping. And um, since Raphael was well known and very well respected in their town, he was able to get her this job. So Leonardo agreed and she actually enjoyed the work that she did. She liked that she got to go in and make the bank look spotless. It took some time for her to like learn how to mix different soaps and cleaning supplies and make the perfect concoctions to make the bank look amazing. And she took pride in being able to take something that was dirty and gross and make it look new and beautiful. Unfortunately, while Leonardo was at work one night, tragedy struck again because that curse is a cruel one and is constantly out to get this woman. One night, one of Leonardo's remaining sons passed away suddenly in his sleep. This was the 10th child she lost and she was hysterical. She was furious, rightly so, and blamed this on the fact that they never had money to call a doctor. She was done letting this curse ruin her life. She was sick of never having enough, so she did something pretty drastic. One night while Leonardo was alone at the bank, she made some changes to the bank's account ledgers. She created an account for herself and just wrote that she had a certain amount of money. I honestly don't know how she thought she was going to pull this off, but girl was desperate. So the next day, she went into the bank and tried to withdraw the money that she magically had in an account that she never signed up for. And the bank was like, um, no. They knew right away that she'd committed basically fraud and she was arrested. Leonardo was sentenced to a year and a half in a women's prison. During this time, men and women couldn't be in the same prison. That would be scandalous. So the women's prison was actually an old nunnery that no one really regulated or paid much attention to. The nuns were in charge and the women basically just did whatever the nuns told them to. They could increase people's sentences for no reason, and conditions were rough, to say the least. Luckily for Leonardo, she knew how to clean, and she knew how to keep her head down and out of trouble, something that she'd practiced with Mommy Dearest for years. So she was able to serve her one and a half years, and then was sent on her way. Unfortunately, while Leonardo was doing an Orange is the New Black, Raphael lost his job because the scandal followed him to his own job, and they basically were worried that because his wife was, like, committing fraud and things like that, that it reflected poorly on Raphael, and he was not able to find another job. Raphael's family was also ashamed and kind of embarrassed, um, and eventually they were like, sorry, you guys have to get out of here. You're, like, making our lives really difficult. <laughs> so Raphael's family scraped together a little bit of money and gave them what they could and sent them on their way. They still loved them, but they were like, I mean, this is just kind of was how the times were. They wouldn't have been able to have their own jobs and be well-respected with their son's reputation. It's a whole thing. So they eventually settled down. They moved around a little bit, doing jobs here and there, and finally found a town that they really liked that was called Lachedonia. So now they were a family of six. Giuseppe was a little older, and Leonardo had one other son and two daughters that she kind of held at an arm's length because she was so worried about losing them. She didn't feel like she could really bond with them. Like, she was still a good mom to them and loved them and took care of them, but she put most of her energy into her miracle baby, Giuseppe. While they were living in Lacedonia, Leonardo visited another Romani camp that was set up near their house to see another fortune teller. When this fortune teller took a look at Leonardo's palms, she said that she saw a prison in one hand and a mental asylum in the other. Yikes of ikes. Leonardo was, of course, worried, but at this point, she was so used to the curse constantly screwing her over that she was ready to put up a fight. So again, she visited the Romani camp every night and became friends with everyone. They accepted her, and she learned about their different rituals and spells, and she bought a ton of books in hopes of learning this craft and finding a way out of the curse. For a moment, she found peace, and the family loved their home in Lacedonia. In July of 1930, the town was having basically what was a harvest festival. It was a 
long week of hard work where everyone in the town would pitch in and harvest the wheat for the year, and it was so hot that they would all just sleep outside in the fields, and one night something awful happened. Everyone was sound asleep when suddenly the ground began shaking and a major earthquake earthquake flattened the whole town. Everything was destroyed. It was a magnitude of 6.6, and the epicenter was very close to Lachedonia, so most of the houses were literally flattened. There was nothing salvageable. Luckily, the whole town had been sleeping in the field, so the injuries and deaths were minimal. And Leonor sat in the fields, paralyzed by fear, and Raphael and her kids stayed by her side as other people ran into the town to check on their homes. And unfortunately, there was a huge aftershock that did cause more death and more injuries. Leonarda literally blamed herself for this earthquake. She was convinced that her curse was so awful, it had the power to destroy an entire town, which is kind of a weird flex, but okay. So they obviously had to move. There was nothing left for them there, so they moved to a small town called Correggio. When they first arrived in Correggio, Leonardo was in a state of total shock. She was in a very bad depression for weeks, and she felt completely hopeless. She stayed in bed most days and barely said anything to the neighbors who tried to come by and welcome the family to Correggio. Everyone knew what had happened in Loria, and they wanted to show how sorry they were that the fit, or in, sorry, I just said in Loria, Lachedonia was where the earthquake happened. So they knew what happened in Lachedonia, and they wanted to show how sorry they were and let the family know that they were welcome and had a safe place to be. While it was rough for Leonardo at first, her four kids had a little bit more freedom and more freedom than they'd ever had in their lives. They got to run around and play outside and make friends in their neighborhood with kids their own ages. Raphael got a great job, and eventually Leonardo reached a, pa- a place of peace. She finally felt like the curse was going to get her no matter what she did, And she kind of had accepted it, so she might as well just find some happiness when she could, which I think is a good attitude. So she dusted herself off and went out into the town to meet her neighbors and apologize for not being as welcoming as she should have. After a while, she started making real friends, which was something that was very new to her as well. And a total surprise, the women in the town loved her. She was very well liked and respected, and all the ladies loved to come and visit Leonardo for a cup of coffee and some good gossip. You know, all of the usual things. Spilling the tea while drinking the tea. Can someone please open a gorgeous tea shop full of cozy couches and like books and stuff and call it Spill the Tea? And you can just go there and like chat with your friends for hours. Can you imagine? It'd be perfect. Okay, anyway, Leonardo started to read people's palms and tell their fortunes and no one in town would make a big decision without first consulting Leonardo. Even people who were kind of skeptical that her advice had anything magical about it would still go see her because magic or not, that girl was always right. Eventually, Leonardo had the idea to start her own shop. The house they lived in was attached to a small shop that had been empty the whole time that they lived there, but one day Leonardo took the time to clean it and make it look amazing, something she was good at. And Raphael was like, you go girl, and he ordered all of the supplies and perfumes that she would need to make soap. We love a supportive husband. So Leonardo perfected her soap recipes and gave out free samples to her friends, old school influencer style. They all told their friends how much they loved the soap, and when Leonardo had her grand opening, the whole town showed up to support her. She even started getting orders from all over Italy, and she began bringing in enough money that she could have supported her entire family without Raphael's job, which is amazing for this time period, especially for a woman-owned business. Shop small, you guys. It's very important. This was also so something that Leonardo had been chasing for a long time because she had such an unstable childhood that it was a really important thing for her to be able to have like money and savings so that when things did come up, they would actually be protected. So it was a really big deal that she was able to finally start putting money away. People would visit the shop for soap, but would stay for the delicious tea cakes and fortune telling. When the Romani people would pass through their town, they would pay for the beautiful soaps in advice and books about their magic rather than money. Leonardo eventually had a collection of books about the occult, 
Magic spells, ancient ruins, all of the things. It was enough to fill the freaking Hogwarts library, okay? This girl had the biggest collection of books. The more that she learned in studies, because don't forget, Leonardo was a perfectionist. She did everything at level 10, and she was like, I have enough knowledge to take care of this stupid curse once and for all. Leonardo had a spell or potion for everything. If an unwed woman found herself pregnant, Leonardo gave them the Italian folk magic version of the Plan B pill. If your husband wasn't pleasing you in the bedroom, Italian folklore magic Viagra to spice things up. She was doing a great job. She also made people very special protection spells um, so that people would be safe in their jobs, etc. As the kids got older, they started to look for more freedom from their mother. Leonardo meant well, and in some of the articles I read, people were like, she sounds like my own overprotective Italian mom. So if you're Italian and can confirm the mama bear tendencies, you get it. Giuseppe was the favorite child, it was no secret, so he was probably the most eager to get out of Correggio and start his own life. He never wanted to make his mom feel bad, though, because he knew that she loved him. She was just showing it by being a little intense. A lot intense, okay? So when recruiters for the Italian army came through the town promising the young men glory and travel and you would come home a hero, Giuseppe was like, this is the perfect excuse. I can get out of here and not hurt my mom's feelings because she'll just have to accept it and she'll be proud of me. So before Leonardo had any idea he was even thinking about joining the army, he signed a contract, and at that point he was stuck no matter what Leonardo's reaction was. Giuseppe was waiting for the right time to break the news to Leonardo, who was probably avoiding it in my opinion, but all the young men in town who had volunteered to join the army were being praised for their bravery and patriotism, so word got around pretty quickly. One day while Leonardo was out of the shops, people kept coming in congratulating her on raising such a brave young man to go off to war, and Leonardo was like, I raised a who that's gonna what now? That night when Giuseppe got home, Leonardo was very calm. They sat down and had a very lovely meal together, and she calmly asked him if there was any way for him to get out of his contract. He told her it was impossible, what's done is done, I'm leaving the nest, mom, and you can't stop me. And she was calmly like, alrighty, sounds great. Giuseppe should have known that a calm Leonardo was way more terrifying than if she had just yelled at him, because Leonardo had never been calm about anything, especially about Giuseppe. And once everyone had gone to bed for the night, Leonardo sobbed and laid in bed anxious all night. While she tossed and turned, she started working out a master plan. By this point, Leonardo knew what to expect from war. Giuseppe was too young to remember the aftermath of World War I, but everyone in Italy saw the horrible aftermath, and they knew exactly what to expect. The men who went off to war either didn't make it home or came back missing limbs or a shell of the person that they once were because of the awful things that they saw and experienced. When Giuseppe signed up for the army, it was at the beginning of World War II, and so it was still kind of a choice for him and it was not like a mandatory draft, but Leonardo was terrified of losing her miracle child. She knew that the protection spells she'd done before wouldn't be strong enough, and so she started to look into new options. This was when it hit her like a ton of bricks. She had to follow the laws of equivalent exchange. This was basically the belief of an eye for an eye, or in this situation, a life for a life. Leonardo was convinced that it was her fate to create this perfect spell to save her son. She was like, this is exactly what I've been training for. This is why I was meant to learn this magic. Everything was leading to this moment. Leonardo wasn't thrilled about the idea of having to murder someone, but in her head, she felt like this was just what had to be done. She believed she had no other choice. Leonardo had never purposely hurt anyone or anything. It would have been normal for people to buy a live chicken and kill it themselves to prepare for cooking, but Leonardo couldn't bear to kill a chicken, so she would pay extra for someone to do it for her. So the task of killing a person really weighed on her, but obviously not that much, because she quickly put together a plan. 
Leonardo decided that she was going to go through with this human sacrifice, but she wanted to try to make it as painless as possible for her victim. She also knew that she had to do this in a way where she wouldn't get caught, so she came up with the idea to kill someone who no one would really miss or notice was missing. So she set her sights on a woman named Faustina Setti. Faustina was an older woman who lived in Correggio that was unmarried and considered a spinster, which means she was probably like in her 40s. But back in those days, and again, if you live in present day Utah, you'll get it, a woman over the age of 24 was considered a spinster, which, stop it, take your time, okay. <laughs> so, poor Faustina hadn't found the right man to settle down with, and her prospects of unmarried men in their 40s were less than great. Faustina has, had visited Leonardo many times in hopes of finding her true love. Leonardo had used her spells and palm readings to help other women in town find a match, and Faustina was like, help a sister out, but no matter what Leonardo did, love had just not been in the cards for Faustina. Again, her confirmation bias and insisting that everyone's fates revolved around her own, Leonardo took this as a sign that Faustina was just meant to be the one that she would sacrifice to save her son. Yikes, it bikes. Faustina trusted Leonardo, so when Leonardo was like, girl, I got you a man's, Faustina was thrilled. She couldn't wait to hear all the details, and according to Leonardo, she had started writing letters to a man who lived in Pola, Croatia, and Leonardo got letters from people all over the world that became basically her witchy pen pals. So the idea that she had this friend from far away didn't seem weird to Faustina. Leonardo told her that this man was in love with Faustina because she'd sent him a picture of her, and he was like, that one is meant for me, and he wanted her to move there immediately so that they could get married. Faustina was thrilled, and she was like, there's nothing keeping me here. This is my fairy tale moment. Let's do this thing. Leonardo knew that even though she made this made sense to um, Faustina, anyone else in town would be like, you can't just up and leave for some random guy that you've never met. So Leonardo insisted that they kept this a secret because no one would understand her love story. Faustina was like, that makes total sense. So the following day, Faustina came to Leonardo's house with her bags packed and all the money that she'd saved, thinking that Leonardo was going to help her finalize her travel plans. And Leonardo also insisted that Faustina should write letters to her friends, saying that she had safely made it to Pola and that her new husband was the bee's knees, etc. And Leonardo would do her the very kind favor of delivering those letters once Faustina was gone. Again, Faustina trusted her friend and this seemed like a good idea, so she wrote the letters detailing this man who swept her off her feet and was saying goodbye. Leonardo offered Faustina a glass of wine to help her calm her nerves. When suddenly, Faustina began to feel sleepy because obviously the wine was drugged. And this is the part of the story where we all turn on Leonardo and stop feeling sorry for her because she hid Faustina's packed bags in a closet, stole her money, and then picked up an axe and murdered her friend Faustina right there in her soap shop. This obviously made a huge mess because Leonardo was not a murderer and she didn't know what to expect. And in her autobiography that she later wrote, Leonardo told the details of chopping up Faustina's body. <laughs> uncomfortable, this is yucky, and draining the blood into a basin. Leonardo decided to stick to what she knew, which was tea cakes and soap, so she baked the blood until it was dried in the oven and then used this in her tea cakes. Again, yikes. She believed that if Giuseppe ate these tea cakes, this would protect his insides, but she also wanted to protect his outsides, so she decided to make soap with Faustina's body. So she put the body parts into a big pot let's call it a cauldron, on her stove with a bunch of caustic soda. She let the pot boil on the stove for hours. Her tea cakes came out of the oven and she, of course, did a taste test. Yuck. And the cakes were a bit dry and had a metallic taste to them. But other than that, she was like, these are great. No one's going to know. Again, yikes. However, 
Her soap didn't go according to plan, and she was shocked to find that the pot on the stove looked nothing like the soap that she's made before, <laughs> which, gee, I wonder why. So she was disappointed and threw what she described as the thick, dark mush, her words, again, from that very detailed autobiography, she threw them into a nearby septic tank. In fact, if I remember correctly, she actually sent Giuseppe to dump the mixture, and he was like, okay, you weirdo, I guess I can do that. He had no idea what was in the pot, but I doubt that he was that surprised by any of Leonardo's weird, like, requests. So he took the pot and dumped it. She also had Giuseppe take Faustina's letters to the post office in a neighboring town. Again, he was like, sure, you weirdo, not sure why I can't just go to the post office in our town, but he didn't really question her and just took them anyways. That night... She gave Giuseppe the tea cakes, which he said were a little dry, but fine. Yikes! And it drove her even a little more crazy that the soap didn't work out. She couldn't understand what she did wrong, and over the next few days, the ladies would come by to drink tea and spill some tea, and she gave them the tea cakes. Again, yikes! So all the ladies would stop by to gossip about Faustina and what a weirdo she was for leaving to marry a man she didn't know, and Leonardo was like, yeah, I know, right? Here, eat this tea cake that was full of her blood. Yikes! Okay, moving on. <laughs> I read in one description of Aries women that they are relentlessly determined, and I would say that that's about right when describing Leonardo. Over the next few weeks, she went over and over what she could have done wrong with the soap and tea cakes, and eventually she came to the conclusion that it was actually Faustina's fault. After all, Faustina was the one who wasn't a worthy sacrifice. Clearly, her life didn't mean as much as her sweet Giuseppe's. I'm being sarcastic, obviously. This is ridiculous. We all know a guy or we have all unfortunately dated a guy whose mom had Leonardo energy. Her son was like the light of the world and it shut the sun shines out of his hole, right? Anyway, Leonardo decided that she needed to sacrifice someone who had more going for her than Faustina. Rude. So she set her sights on a woman named Francesca Suave. Francesca, which I think is one of the most beautiful names. So elegant. She was recently widowed. She had been a very respected school teacher in their town, but had to leave her job when her husband got sick. By the time he passed away, the position at the school had already been filled, and she was struggling to make ends meet or find a new position. She didn't have any children of her own, so she really was out on her own trying to make things work. Leonardo decided that she would be a great option, so she came up with a story for Francesca. Again, she promised an out-of-town connection with a very prestigious girls' school in Pancenza? Pancenza. In northern Italy. I think I said that right. I'm sorry, I swear I'm trying. I'm sorry if I'm butchering all these names. I promise you I am doing my very best. Piancenza. In Italy. Okay. But it was very fancy. And all of the rich and famous people sent their daughters there. So it was very secretive. And the exact location was only known to select people. And this meant that Francesca couldn't tell anybody exactly where she was going. Again with the secrets. And again with the letters that Leonardo would so graciously send for her telling her friends that she'd arrived and was loving her new position. Obviously, there was no fancy girl's school, and when Francesca came the next day, her bags packed and her life savings in her hand, she was ready for her journey. Leonardo was there with a glass of wine for her nerves, again, which was again poisoned. Francesca drank the wine, passed out, Leonardo stole her money and added her bags to the closet, and then murdered Francesca with an axe and began the tea cakes and soap making process once again. According to Leonardo, she was thrilled, yikes, when she was cutting up the body to see a layer of nice yellow fat. It dawned on her that maybe the reason her last murder soap hadn't worked very well was because the missing important ingredient was the fat. Faustina had been very thin, and Francesca had this nice layer of fat. This woman was clearly losing her mind at this point, in my opinion. So, 
When she pulled her tea cakes out of the oven and took a bite, they were again a little bit dry, had a slight metallic taste, but this time she felt what she described as an electric jolt run through her, and she was convinced that these tea cakes were full of magic. Uh, uh-oh. Um, so when she went to check the full the pot full of body parts and caustic soda, she was furious when she saw that, again, it looked the same as the last batch. Without thinking, she grabbed the hot pot in anger so that she could throw the mixture out, and she ended up badly burning both of her palms. Later that night, Giuseppe noticed that she'd hurt her hands, which was something that never happened because Leonardo was so worried and overly cautious all the time that he thought that she was doing this on purpose and trying to manipulate him and maybe make him feel bad for leaving, like she needed him around and she was like this frail old woman, which she actually tried to hide her hands from him because she didn't want him to know, but this is just what Giuseppe kind of took for face value. She again presented him with tea cakes, which he ate uh, and didn't comment on the dryness. Ew. As we know by now, Leonardo was a perfectionist and she just couldn't handle having this failure looming over her. Honey, you've got to stop killing people. But of course, she can't let it go. So she decided that her spells must not be working because the sacrifice was not great enough. She decided that she would need to kill someone that would actually cause her pain and sadness, which is pretty cold-blooded that those other two didn't really matter, but here we are. There was only one woman in Correggio that Leonardo felt was worthy of this sacrifice. Virginia Cachopo was a very famous soprano singer. She um, had performed all over the world. She traveled and sang on many famous stages and knew all of the famous people. And she moved to Correggio after she retired from singing and moved in with her brother and his wife. Virginia was immediately loved and welcomed in the town. And at first, Leonardo was jealous of Virginia. She was like the new hot babe in town. And Leonardo was used to kind of having a big name in herself. And now suddenly everyone was all excited about Virginia. It was very petty. But over time, Leonardo and Virginia became friends when she got to know Virginia better, and she was like, oh, celebrities, they're just like us. Virginia would tell Leonardo about all the places that she'd traveled and the people she'd met, and Leonardo would share her own stories and palm readings. One day, Virginia came to tell Leonardo that she was thinking about leaving Correggio to go back into the music world and find some new adventure. At first, Leonardo was sad that her friend was leaving and probably a little mad, but then she realized it was perfect timing because she could get exactly what she needed from Virginia. Awful. So over the next few weeks, she spun Virginia a tale just like she did with her other two victims. Leonardo told Virginia that she'd found her a town, or found her an out-of-town connection, because of course she did, um, but it was very secret, and she wasn't sure if she should tell her the details. Virginia wasn't as naive as Francesca and Faustina had been, so she really had to put the work in to make this story seem legit. She acted like Virginia was pulling this secret information from her and being like, oh, I really shouldn't say, until Virginia eventually was like, I gotta know, tell me everything. Leonardo told Virginia that she was friends with a very wealthy man who donated a ton of money to the fine arts and basically worked as an agent for young, talented singers. However, this man didn't want anything to do with being in the spotlight, so he basically needed someone to act as the face of his operation and attend all of the events and uh, fancy parties to bump elbows with celebrities. Virginia was used to being in the spotlight and had met people like this man who were very private, so it didn't seem that odd to her. She agreed to travel to Florence to meet him, and again, Leonardo encouraged her to write some letters to her family beforehand, so she agreed. When Virginia arrived at Leonardo's house, the day that she was set to leave, she had her bags with her and all of her money, which was a lot. Leonardo felt very sad about what she had to do. Again, not sad enough to not murder her friend, and she eventually got over that, <laughs> and pressured Virginia into having one last glass of wine together. Once Virginia passed out, Leonardo took her life savings, which was about 50,000 lira, which was more than Leonardo's soap shop made in an entire year, 
and she went through her bags and picked out some of the nicest clothes and jewelry to sell later on. Then she put the rest of Virginia's possessions in the closet and committed her third and final murder. When she dismembered Virginia, Leonardo again found a layer of fat, but Virginia's fat was creamy white, and Leonardo was like, hell yes, this is definitely magic fat. So look, the next time you complain about that layer of fat on your tummy that we all have, okay, just remember, it's magic fat. (laughs) I like that. Okay, moving on. Leonardo was thrilled when she put the body into the pot with a caustic soda and finally saw a soap mixture that looked how she'd imagined it. She poured a bottle of Virginia's expensive perfume into the soap and was thrilled that she finally did it. Awful. As for the tea cakes, they were her best yet. They were moist and not at all metallic tasting. (laughs) Again with the yikes. That night when Giuseppe got home, Leonardo was like, welcome home, honey, I drew you a bath. And Giuseppe was like, okay, thanks, I think. As he was undressing, his mom barged into the bathroom, and he tried to cover himself and was like, excuse me, privacy please, what are you doing? And she was like, what? Like, I've never seen it before, I changed your diapers. And then, in a V.C. Andrews book-style mothering, she forced him into the tub and insisted that she washed every inch, (laughs) uh uh-oh, with the very special soap that she made. After the most uncomfortable experience of his life, Giuseppe couldn't even look his mother in the eye. He was used to her being overbearing and paranoid and eccentric, but this was just one step too far, and she had essentially ruined their relationship forever. Then she practically force-fed him the tea cakes and was like, look at me, I've done it. Ick. (laughs) And then, the rest of the tea cakes and soaps, she gifted to her friends, and everyone was like, this is the best soap you've ever made, these tea cakes are perfection. Horrifying. People in town may have thought it was a little strange for Francesca and Faustina to run off and stop writing, but mostly they didn't think anything of it, which was exactly Leonardo's plan. Virginia, however, had people who would expect to hear from her. Not long after she, quote, left town, her sister-in-law became very suspicious because they were close, and she absolutely would have stayed in touch. It made no sense that she had just stopped writing. Virginia's sister-in-law, who was just referred to as Mrs. Cachopo, was like, this is sus, and started to do her own investigation. She asked around town if anyone knew who Virginia's closest friends were, Uh, Mrs. Cachopo was not into the palm-reading, fortune-telling scene, so she'd never really crossed paths with Leonardo. But all their mutual friends were like, she was last seen at Leonardo's house, and the neighbors also said that they saw Virginia arrive at Leonardo's, but none of them could remember seeing her leave. Leonardo was probably shocked when Mrs. Cachopo came to question her, but she put on a kind front and offered her a coffee and a palm-reading. Mrs. Cachopo saw through what others saw as fortune-telling and was like, this woman is just manipulating me and telling me what I want to hear. She could easily see how someone in a vulnerable position would fall for Leonardo's stories and fortune-telling. So she went to the police and was like, hello, I've done your job for you. These three women were all friends with Leonardo and suddenly they up and left and no one has heard from them since. So the police went to question Leonardo and she was like, of course my three friends came to me for advice. Everyone does. By the way, officer, how's that Viagra spell working for you? editorializing of course she didn't actually say that that we know of the point was they were like okay sweet old leonardo you're right there's no way that you could have done anything to these poor women but then they looked deeper into the letters that had been sent and followed the postmarks to the different post offices leonardo had sent giuseppe to drop off the letters when they showed up at the post offices and questioned the people who worked there they all described giuseppe dropping off the letters and this option made much more sense to the police. So they got a search warrant and of course found all three women's belongings hidden in the closet at Leonardo's house. Giuseppe was arrested and questioned and was completely confused because he didn't have anything to do with these women, but he looked insanely guilty. 
He was a strong young man who was about to leave town to go off with the army. These women were last seen at his house. He was mailing their letters and all of their possessions were there. So they basically were like, case closed. We know what you did. Then out of nowhere, Leonardo showed up and was like, okay, okay, it was me. They didn't believe her at first and were like, this crazy Italian mom is here to defend her son and try to get him off the hook. So Leonardo is spilling the tea about the curse, how she had no choice. So she murdered these women and made them into tea cakes and soap. And Giuseppe is sitting there in shock and then has the realization that he ate body cakes and then barfed his guts all over the police station, which is awkward and uncomfortable. But, but uh, you know, an expected reaction. Leonardo was basically offended that they said that they didn't think that it would be possible for her to be strong enough to kill and dismember anybody. So she was like, all right, bet, take me to the morgue and I'll show you. So they did. And she dismembered a body right in front of them very quickly. Yikers. Giuseppe was so disgusted with his mom, rightly so, but she didn't care if he hated her. She had done what needed to be done. In her mind, it was worth it because he would be protected at war and that was all that mattered. The whole town was, of course, pissed, probably realizing that they'd also eaten and used Leonardo's disgusting creations, and everyone turned on her. Poor Raphael tried to defend her and stick by her side, but he was basically shunned, and he also lost his job because of this. Giuseppe went off to war without a backwards glance and didn't say goodbye to Leonardo, and her other three kids quickly moved away and changed their names, leaving Raphael behind. Sadly, all of this was just too much for Raphael, and he turned to alcohol and eventually got really sick and died before Leonardo started her jail sentence. While she was on trial, Leonardo loved every second of it. She realized that she loved being in the spotlight and was an open book and gave every gory detail on the stand. It made everyone very uncomfortable, and it seemed like she was mentally deteriorating. She would make jokes and laugh at inappropriate times, and at one point, an expert witness said that there was no way caustic soda was powerful enough to dissolve a body, and Leonardo was super offended and was like, bring me a freaking body to this courtroom. I will show you right now. Uh-oh. <laughs> Once it was all said and done, Leonardo, I'm not laughing because that's funny. It's not funny. It's horrible. It, but it just, it's comical to me that this woman is trying to be like, no, I will prove to you what I did. It's just, it's, it's very upsetting. I laugh at inappropriate times because I'm uncomfortable, okay? Once it was all said and done. Leonardo was sentenced to 30 years in prison, plus an additional three years in a mental asylum. Leonardo did just fine in prison. She was a kooky old lady who made people laugh and gave people advice and palm readings. Eventually, she got a job in the kitchen um, at the prison, and everyone loved her baked goods as a special treat. Seems a little too on the nose for me, but okay. While she was in prison, she wrote her autobiography called Confessions of an Embittered Soul. She wrote extravagant stories with crazy details, and some of her confessions can't be proven. In her book, she also shared some recipes. Basically, she was like an old-school food blogger. She would tell you a story, and then at the end of the gore, you would get a recipe. <laughs> she even included her cannibalistic tea cake recipe, minus the blood. So if you can get past the blood and guts part, you can learn to make a lovely bolognese sauce. Leonardo's health started to decline 20 years into her sentence. She suffered a stroke, and her seizures came back, and by the time she transferred to the asylum in the late 1960s, she was in very poor health. She died on October 15, 1970, when she was 77 years old, not long before she was actually supposed to be released from her sentence. When she died, an autopsy was done, and it was discovered that she had a brain bleed that was actually caused by caustic soda vapor, which probably led to a lot of her hysteria, because basically breathing in that murder soda fumes created literal holes in her brain. And that's on irony. Also, if you remember from early on in our story, one of the Romani fortune tellers said that she saw prison in one hand and a mental asylum in the other. So, very interesting. 
Giuseppe set off to war, and there was no record of his return, and it's widely believed that he unfortunately died in battle. As for the rest of Leonardo's children, it's unknown what happened to them since they changed their names and never looked back. That is the story of the soap maker of Correggio, Leonardo Cianciulli. Um, I wanted to mention that the main source I used for this episode was a book called The Curse by Ryan Green. He's an amazing true crime author. I actually listened to this as an audiobook on Audible. Not sponsored, but should be Audible. Hit me up. <laughs> anyway, this particular book was a collection of four of his books, and it was really, really good. It was um, narrated really well. I'm really picky about na narrators. Like, it drives me nuts sometimes listening to books, and this one was, like, really well done. So, I highly recommend it if you are picky like me about audiobooks. This is a really good one. And the set of four that I got is called the Ryan Green True Crime Collection true crime collection volume four so you get those four books in one yay we love a deal i hope that you liked this episode and found it interesting if you did please rate review and subscribe it's super helpful it would also be super great if you wanted to share it with your friends who also like murdery things and help me grow this creep squad uh send me your hometown murder stories your spooky ghost stories anything in between to tgicrimeday at gmail.com and until next week Always be aware of someone making you fancy promises to get you out of town and never accept dry metallic tasting cake.